There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Inspired Evolution. And guys, it is such a treat to be here today. We are blessed with the presence of Dr. John Martini. John, how are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. <laughs> it's such a pleasure to have you here again. For those tuning in to Dr. John Martini for the first time, it's actually impossible that you're tuning into him for the first time, but I'm going to do just a quick little honour um, anyway. He is considered one of the world's leading authorities on human behaviour and personal development. He's the founder of the Martini Institute, which is a private research and education organization. The curriculum spans over 72 different courses. It covers multiple aspects of human development. There is so much brewing here. The way I like to describe you to my friends, family, cohort is you're one of the titans in this world <laughs> of human behavior and, and, uh, and yeah, uh, personal psychology. So thank you so much for being here and gracing us with your presence today. No, thank you for having me. I was looking forward to it. <laughs> so, John, tell us, um, you know, we, we did an episode uh, not too long ago and we were tuning into um, a really deep conversation around values. But I sort of, I, I realized we never really understood, I uh, never really got the opportunity or, you know, on me to um, peel back into where did all this come from for you? So what input inspired you to sort of work on yourself, go on the journey of, what was your journey? How did you first come to, behavioral psychology like what what is the impetus for you to try and improve yourself <laughs> well um i was born with a <clears throat> speech impediment no way I, you're a speaker <laughs> okay yep go on no, really but uh yeah i had to wear or put strings and buttons in my mouth as a kid from about an age one and a half to about four and I had to go to speech pathologist because I had problems pronunciation using my mouth properly. Wow. I also had my arm and leg turned in. And so I had to wear braces till I was four also. And um, so I was kind of like the fourth cup kid. Wow. And when I got into first grade, when I finally got to school and got out of my braces, I, um, no matter what I did, I just didn't know how to read I couldn't read I was I couldn't spell and I couldn't read hmm. I had dyslexia and other speech problems right I had to wear a dunce cap believe it or not they had dunce caps in those days and the teacher told my parents in my first grade class that I I'm afraid your son is not going to be able to read he's not going to be able to write properly I don't think he's going to ever amount to anything go very far or be able to communicate wow so, yeah I made it through elementary school by learning how to ask very smart kids questions. And I would make them feel better about themselves. But what did you learn? Tell me about that book you read. 
and um, and I try to get them to do it. And I guess some of them felt sorry for me, and some of them befriended. And I made it through elementary school with asking questions, and which I'm known for today. My skills of asking, yeah. Questions. And then my parents moved from Houston, Texas, where I was growing up, to Richmond, Texas, which is a small town, and we lived in the country in a low socioeconomic area, hmm. and. There, we did not have at the school, because I had to go 13 miles to school. The school we went through there, bus to, was not really the brightest kids. And I didn't have anybody to ask questions to, and I ended up failing. And I ended up dropping out of school. So I left home when I was 13. And I was a street kid. I lived in a, in a car. I lived in people's homes. I lived in a park. I lived in a bowling alley. I lived in a a restaurant, like a restaurant. I, I was kind of a street kid. At 14, I, um, uh, I went off to California, hitchhiked to California, and was a street kid there. And um, kind of had a really adventurous life. There's quite a few adventures that are pretty cool. 15, I eventually made it to Hawaii because I took up surfing. I was good at balance on a surfboard. But mm. Texas wasn't the surf capital California was. So. <laughs> yeah, of course. And I went to Hawaii. So at 15, I moved to Hawaii. I lived under a bridge first, then a park bench. I just took my daughter to that park bench uh, in November on my 65th birthday. And then I lived in a bathroom, then an abandoned car, and kept social climbing. Eventually, I got into a, an abandoned house that one day was gone when I got back. And then uh, in a tent eventually. And I nearly died at 17 in that tent. Wow. And luckily a lady found me there and helped me get back on my feet. I was unconscious for three and a half days. And then I um, went to a health food store with her help to get some food in me. And uh, from there, there was a guy there that said, man, you need, you need to take a yoga class. Mm. This interesting character there. And I ended up going to a yoga class one night where a special guest speaker named Paul C. Bragg was there. Right. And this gentleman in one hour, one night, one message, this one man really said something really profound to me. He said, we have a body, we have a mind, and we have a, a soul. The body must be directed by the mind. The mind must be guided by the soul in order to maximize who we are as a human being. Love that. And that we have to take command of what we think about, what we visualize, what we affirm what we feel about and how we act if we want to master our life and do something amazing in our life. Nobody ever talked to me like this. Mm. And um, that night, I, um, he took us through a guided imagery meditation, mm. which I'd never done before. And that night I saw a real vision, was unexpectedly, a vision of me standing on a balcony in front of a million people. Uh, speaking that pic that paint that picture is a painting today that image that i had has now been turned into a painting a famous painting that sits in my office hmm. and uh that night i i saw that somehow i was going to overcome my learning problems and i was going to become a teacher and i was going to go out and i saw that night that i was going to do what this man did for others and i want to that night i want to be a teacher and um, travel the world and step foot in the world, around the world, and just learn and be smart enough to teach. That was the first night I ever thought I was going to be intelligent. And that really did change my life. And that night was the night I first made a determination that I was going to try to overcome my reading and learning problems and speaking problems. And that took me on a trajectory that was relentless. I eventually. Um, flew to California, hitchhiked back to Texas from Oahu. And uh, there my parents encouraged me to take a GED, a high school equivalency test. So I would eventually be able to get a decent job with a high school degree. Um, somehow with what Paul Bragg, the teacher, said to me, because he told me every single day to overcome my learning problems is to say that I'm a genius and I apply my wisdom every day. With affirmation. I've never made a missed a day. I've said that every single day for 47 plus years. Wow. And um, I always say a genius is one who listens to their inner vision and follows and obeys their inner voice. 
and lets the voice and the vision on the inside be louder than all opinions on the outside. So they master the Bible. Uh, <clears throat> so I ended up going back to Texas and amazingly by guessing and saying that little affirmation, I passed my high school equivalency test. And then my parents suggested that since the waves are not up, why don't you take a college entrance exam? So I took this college entrance exam thinking I might do the same thing. And I guessed and I passed. It was really miraculous because I really couldn't read half the stuff that was on there. Just with the pencil and just with my intuition to fill in stuff. Then I took my first college test, first college class. Hmm. There two English and history, trying to go back to college. And I first class I took in history and I needed 72, 75 to pass. And I got a 27. And when I saw the results outside the door. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I uh, didn't want to look at anybody. I just ran to my car and I cried. Because I thought, I guess it's true. I'll never be able to read, never be able to do this. And I drove home crying. And I curled up in a fetal position underneath this Bible stand in my mother's living room when I got there. And she came home from shopping and she saw me and said, son, what happened? What's wrong? She hadn't seen me cry in a long time. And um, I said, mom, I blew the test. I guess I don't have what it takes. I guess I'll never be able to read or write or communicate or never mount anything, never go very far in life. I'm sorry, mom, I apologize to her. And she said something that only a mother could say. She puts her hand on my shoulder and she said, son, whether you become a great teacher, healer, and philosopher like you dream about and travel the world, whether you go back to ride giant waves in Hawaii like you've done, or you return to the streets in Pandangle as a bum, I just want to let you know that your father and I are going to love you no matter what you do. When she said that, my hand went into a fist. I looked up and I saw a vision of me standing on that balcony. And I said to myself, I'm going to master this thing called reading and studying and learning. I'm going to master this thing called teaching, healing, and philosophy. And I'm going to do whatever it takes. I'm going to travel whatever distance. I'm going to pay whatever price to give my service of love across this planet. I'm not going to let any human being, not even myself, stop me on this mission. I got up and I hugged my mom. I went into my, my, living, my, my bedroom, pardon me. I got a Funk and Wagnalls dictionary out. And I went to the beginning of the dictionary and I made a decision. I was going to memorize 30 words a day until my vocabulary was strong enough to be able to pass school. So I started with A, 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 and all that stuff in the dictionary. And I learned how to pronounce it properly, spell it properly, use it in a sentence and a meaning. And my mom tested me on 30 words a day until my vocabulary was strong enough to pass school. But then I didn't stop. I just wanted <laughs> to read. read. So I started living in the dictionary, living in encyclopedias. I read eight complete sets of encyclopedias over the next couple of years. And I started passing and then excelling. And uh, my mom, a year, not even a year later, came to me and she said, son, what do you want for your birthday, for your 19th birthday, for Christmas? I was born on Thanksgiving Day. I said, mom, I want the greatest teachings on the face of the earth by the greatest minds, the greatest philosophers and thinkers that have ever lived in every field. I want the greatest ideas ever born in the human spirit. 
What a thing to ask for. I love it. He said, you sure you don't want a t-shirt? I don't care about a damn t-shirt. I don't care about clothes. I just want to fill my mind and learn. So she didn't know what to do, but she contacted her brother, who was a a professor at MIT. And um, he was Uncle Ralph, we called him. And he sent to our house on a big flatbed truck two six by six by six foot wooden crates with thousands of books in it as a gift. And I remember they loaded them on the ground and I went out with a crowbar and opened them up and just kept carrying stacks of books into my room and organized my room into this sort of virtual library, this this stack book library and have this little yoga mat in the center. And I was where I could do the window and have a sun salute. And I sat and I read, 18 to 20 hours a day. The only time I wasn't reading is I was driving. I usually read on the way to school, driving in between a, a steering wheel. Mm-hmm. And I just read 18 to 20 hours a day and meditated and fasted. And I just wanted to know the laws of the universe. I wanted to know how human beings ticked. And within a short period of time, I had a young woman come up to me and ask me to teach her yoga. After that, I had a young man who's from Persia asked me to teach him meditation because I was learning it. And then all of a sudden I had a guy come out and he said, can you, can you give us some insight on some mathematics that you've been learning? And I had about 17 people gather around a round table. And that was the first real class that I presented. I was still 18 and I never stopped. I started teaching classes every day. When I went to the university of Houston after Wharton, I uh, started teaching under the trees out in the park area in between the buildings. And sometimes 100 to 125, 150 people, sometimes it's 12 to 400 people would gather and ask questions under the park. When it would rain, we'd go into the cafeteria. And I had classes every day, cold or hot. And then I, when I went on to professional school, I gave classes every day still, each night. i get up at 2, 2.30. I would start to read by then, I was speed reading, so I'd read four to seven books on average a day. And then I would uh, go jogging, come back, go to, go to class. Sometimes I got to ch- place out of the classes now, and I got to teach some of the classes. Others I had to take. And then I went to clinic, and then right at 7 o'clock, I was back at my apartment teaching classes every night till 10. And then back to bed at 10 and back up at 2. And I slept for four hours a day for 35 years. And I um, just devoured everything I could in every field now. 299 different disciplines to try to understand and maximize the evolution of human consciousness and how to maximize human awareness and potential in human beings. Mm. And anything that allows a human being to perform uh, at a peak level and do something extraordinary and amazing and inspiring in their life and live missionful and purposeful and truly inspired is what I'm up to. And since then I have, uh, been on a relentless pursuit of that and traveling full-time, as you know, uh, until recently. And, uh, you know, I've been to, I've traveled 20 million miles. I've clocked on, on um, mileage now, and I've spoken in 154 countries and I've done up to 426 speeches in a year and about a thousand interviews a year. So I've, I've been in a relentless pursuit since. <laughs> You have not been idle, that's for sure. Thank you so much for, for, for sharing all that. There is so much that emerges out of that. And, you know, I think <clears throat> one of the conversations that is most profound is your pursuit of theologies, which is, yeah, you know, 299 different um, areas to unpack and explore. And, you know, what's, like, is, are you looking for, a, like you mentioned, you know, peak performance is kind of the conversation that you're, you know, trying to dissect through there. What are some of the fundamental um, things that are that are the through line through everything that you've researched? Because you've read, now I've, it's over 30,000 books, like, wow. Yeah, I've been relentless on that. I, I just finished reading again. I've read most all the Nobel Prize winners because I've been doing it. Most of the Western philosophers, Eastern mystics, anybody I get my hands on. And the most recent book I read again, I haven't read it in years, was Gilbert and Lewis's book, The Atom and the, Mo- Mo- the Molecule. Hmm. And in there, he talks about polarized and unpolarized states of chemistry. Right. And he talks about uh, 
remnants and what is called a coercive, coercivity. And these are tendencies to polarize or depolarize chemical states. And the laws that govern that are identical to the laws that govern human behavior. And so I started to put together a book called Psychophysics, a textbook of psychophysics, and the relationship between physical principles and psychology. Because I want to make a hard science out of a pseudoscience, which is mostly out there in psychology, self-help popular stuff out there. Yeah. Um, so, for instance, if, if a, because we, when we have a set of values in our life that are unique to us, hmm. whenever we live in alignment congruently with what we value most, and we're spontaneously inspired from within to act. And um, we're disciplined, reliable, we're focused, and we tend to uh, walk our talk and expand our space and time horizons and build momentum and, ex and awaken our executive center and awaken an inspired vision and strategically plan that vision and execute that vision with self-governance. Whenever we do that, we reach a state of objectivity and that objectivity state uh, allows us to be literally soulful, state of unconditional loveful, um, with neutrality and non-polarization, depolarization. And um, but whenever we live by our lower values, hmm. because we've subordinated other people, injected the values of outer authorities as a superego, we tend to go into our subcortical areas and our amygdala, which is a desire center to avoid pain and seek pleasure. And we tend to polarize our perceptions, seeking impulsively the pleasures of food, prey, consumption, and try to instinctively avoid the predators uh, and threats. And we live in survival and polarize ourselves. And the things that we infatuate or resent or the things we seek and avoid, the things we have impulses and instincts toward and away from, they occupy space and time in our mind and add time and space and age us entropically. Instead of when we're living by our highest values, we literally extract out space and time from the mind, become present, and have a negentropic agelessness, timeless mind agelessness. So the laws of physics uh, and chemistry uh, have a very direct correlation with psychology. The real psychology, not the pseudo-psychology that's mostly taught to the masses out there, the opium of the masses that people want to hear and fantasize about instead of actually embrace and utilize for themselves. So let's actually go there in terms of one of the things that you just flagged was there is a lot of, um, and there's so much in your story I want to go back to, but let's, let's just go there, there. In terms of there is a lot of opiate for the masses. And I think just let's let's unpack that a little bit because one of the questions I've got is your, your values that for those tuning in, um, you're very clear. It's research, write, travel, teach, right? Um, and I love that. But you could have learned many things. You could have researched many things, which you have, um, and you've written about many things. You've travelled to many places. But the, the teaching part, you could be teaching us, like you said, you could be teaching us maths. You could be teaching us meditation. Why is it so centred on personal development? Why is this, like, the, the focus for you? That's a great question. Whenever one lives by their highest values, um, they embrace challenge in the pursuit of a mission and they fill their day with challenges that inspire them to have fulfillment. Because uh, when we live by our highest values, we have fulfillment. Mm. When we don't, we have sort of an emptiness. The Gnostics called it pleroma and kenoma. And whenever we do that, when we stop and look at the problems or challenges, the obstacles, that the questions, the, the, the mysteries, if you will, that we can face, there are what they call intrinsic values that relate to animated life forms in the first person, which is humans. Hmm. And solving human problems is the greatest problems we can solve on the planet. So anything we can do to solve human uh, challenges and problems and voids and help them fill those voids, help them solve those mysteries, solve those problems, uh, answer those questions, um, is probably the highest pursuit the human being can do that gives the most fulfillment in life. Uh, so we could say that's a degree of enlightening ourselves about how to master our existence. You know, at the level of the essence of our soul, um, 
we have nothing missing in our life at the level of the existence of our senses, things appear to be missing. And that's where our problems originate. So we, uh, so anytime we can solve that, that's to our greatest advantage and the most fulfillment. Bill Gates, I think, has reached a level where he's comprehended that. In his creative capitalistic text with Buffett, he, he outlined that. But he asks a simple question that I think every human being could benefit on a daily basis. Hmm. What is the greatest service I could provide that solves the greatest problems in humanity today with the resource I have in the most efficient, effective way that would inspire me? And a great question to ask yourself every day. Yeah. yeah, because if you ask those type of concise questions, your life goes in a concise direction. The quality of your life is based on the quality of the questions you ask. And if you ask con uh, questions that bring equanimity to the mind and equilibrate the mind, where you're the most objective, uh, you're most centered and neutral, you're least distracted. When we are highly infatuated with something impulsively, we fear its loss. Hmm. And we fantasize about its gain. So we have a phobia for its loss and then a philia for its gain. When we are highly resentful to something, we have a phobia of its gain and a philia of its loss. Mm. And so living in a highly polarized phobia-philia state is the most disempowered because these phobias and philias, these infatuation resentments, occupy space and time in our mind and run us as brain noise and cause literally electrical and molecular imbalances in the brain, striving for neutrality. That's what ions are on a quest for neutrality mean, questions in the brain. They're noise in the brain that are subconsciously stored, they're imbalanced. The moment we ask quality questions, which are guided intuitively towards neutrality and objectivity, the executive center in our brain in the medial prefrontal cortex is illuminated with blood glucose and oxygen, where we maximally function in the most authentic manner and make the wisest actions not the foolish decisions of polarization. A decision was always based on what we believe will give us the greatest advantage over disadvantage, but in objectivity, that, that's an illusion. We realize that everything we decide always has a pair of opposites, birth a pair of opposites. But when we actually take an action out of love and inspiration, not out of a decision because of a polarization and a bias, and we transcend our biases and see things authentically, we actually have the most original ideas, the most awakened creative genius to solve the greatest problems on the planet. And it's almost like our physiology, psychology, sociology, and theology is constantly offering us uh, feedback mechanisms to homeostate us, to guide us, almost like a panpsychic intelligence of the universe is wanting us to maximize our fullest potential on planet Earth. And so if we look and see things on the way and ask questions, how is whatever's happening? whether supportive or challenging, helping me fulfill my mission of service on the planet, then you realize that it's all on the way and there's something to be graced over, not disgraced about. I love that. And so one of the questions that comes to me in, from that space is, you know, we talk about um, your grounding in the conversation around love for us. And I think it's really potent. And one of the things that I want to address is um, we've, you know, and when we start, talking about love, there is very much the opportunity for us to kind of feel like, you know, oh, here we go again on positive psychology. And I know for just having followed you and, you know, um, put you in the place of my mentor for, in so many ways, um, that you, we often, you talk about the balanced mind rather than um, positive psychology. And there's, you know, positive psychology may actually, in fact, appear to be like a lopsided stool with maybe not enough legs. Um, can you tell us a little bit about positive psychology versus having balance and then still how love emanates through that from a balanced perspective. The, what I call the, Emmanuel Kant said that there was an imminent and a transcendent self. Hmm. One that dealt with phenomena of the senses and one that dealt with nomina or what Plato would call the ideal forms of the soul. And scientists has now put that into neurological terms. Um, as the amygdala and the hindbrain areas and the forebrain executive center. So we put it into anatomical and kind of a neurological language today, but that's the same thing. Whenever we are in our imminent mind and we're 
we're in our amygdala, we, we seek support over challenge. We seek prey over predator. And we end up man manifesting what we call false positives as a survival mechanism. In the wild, the animal uh, had to deal with camouflage by both prey and predator. And so it emerged inside itself what they call patternisty, to be able to discern in the, in the camouflage patterns that might be animated, and then to impose pareidolia, which is the facial expressions on them, to accentuate with false positives the potential that that could be prey or predator. Hmm. And it's better to err on the false positive and assume it's there when it's not than to assume with false negatives that it's not yeah. there when it's <laughs> Of course. So what happens when we're in amygdala, that area of the brain accentuates subjective biases with false positives to accentuate a positive and a negative. And we hmm. polarize ourselves like we do in chemistry. And literally polarize, bipolarize our, our emotions and our chemistries. We call it bipolar condition if it's extreme. Mm. As a result of it, we have this addiction to pleasure and this avoidance of pain, the addiction to pride and the avoidance of shame, externally and internally. And we become vulnerable to the, and gullible um, to those that sell the fantasy of the opium of the masses mm. of pleasure without pain. But in fact, maximum development and, and achievement occurs at the border of those two. If you get prey without predator, you get gluttonous and you get fat and you don't get fit. If you get predator without prey, you starve and get emaciated and don't get fit. But if you put the two together, the predator keeps you eating just the right amount to keep you fit, but not too much. So it regulates itself, just like ghrelin and leptin inside the stomach on distension and emptiness is keeping the hormones balanced when you're on living by your highest value. It balances the hormones. If not, the hypothalamus is thrown off by the amygdala. So we're vulnerable, and we want the pleasure without the pain when we're not living by our highest values and inspired. When we're living by our highest values and really have something truly engaging and that we're totally inspiring that we want to do, we don't live to eat, we eat to live. We live we eat just the right amount to maximally perform because we're so engaged, we don't want to throw anything off and volatilize our, our blood sugar. But the second we're not engaged doing something that's really high in our values, we're in our amygdala and we tend to want to get pleasure without pain and we want to consume, we want to eat, we want sexual reproduction, we want anything that's a dopamine fix. And this is why we have an addiction to positive thinking because most people are uninspired by what they do are not objective, not engaged, and they're, they're looking for immediate gratification to compensate for it because their space and time horizons are shrunk. And Freud called that the idiot. The id is the impulsive, instinctual animal nature within us with a shrunken psyche, which iota means tiny shrunk. Mm. And the ego is more expanded. And so an individual that lives authentically according to their highest values expands naturally what their potential is as a human being and builds momentum to achieve greatness. Now, in 1983, after 10 years of attempting to live by positive thinking, I read every self-help book I think that was out there at the time. And um, I decided to do, I first noticed that the more I was trying to be positive, I noticed that I would run into people that would, I would react to and have negative thoughts, or I'd end up doing something that I'd have negative thoughts. And no matter what I was doing, I still couldn't stabilize and maintain this positivity. Mm. And I, then I thought, well, I need to go and get some mentorship. So I went to all the gurus. So I met Norman Minson Peel, and I met W. Clement Stone, and I met uh, the Earl Nightingale and his brother, and I met W. I mean, uh, uh, tremendous Charlie Jones, and I met, um, you know, Brian Tracy and Mark Victor Hansen and Jack Canfield. I mean, I've met all the people out there that in the things. Ed Tullison, uh, I mean, Lou, Lou. I mean, I, I've met, I met a lot of guys out there. And one thing that I I realized is they were not positive either when I got to know them. They were just human beings that had positive times and negative times. And I was, every time I would see that, I realized that I had both those, they had both those. But I'm wondering why is it that we're all being hypocritical? Why are we saying something to be one side when we both, none of us are doing it. And I didn't like that hypocrisy. I, I wanted to study something that was true and figure out how this thing really worked. Because I just felt like I was, I, was, I was becoming polarized and I almost had to hide myself publicly from people knowing that I had the other side because mm -hmm. I was trying to promote one-sidedness back then. 
And then um, I decided at age 28 to do a research project. And what I did is I took 300 of the best-selling books that were available on the market. Um, and I went through each page in each book, one page at a time, and circled every positive word in those books and extracted them onto three by five index cards and stored them alphabetically in boxes as the words were emerging. And I came and extracted out of 300 books, 2,000 of the most positive words in the English language. Wow. And I put them in alphabetical order. And um, then I sat and I meditated in these two boxes of these now positive words in the top left corner of the, the index card. I then meditated on each one and I thought of the most positive statement, affirmation or quotation that I could think of, including that word inside it. So this is the most positive word inside the most positive statement that I can conceive with. Yeah. And I compiled 2,000 of the most positive statements, affirmations or quotations. And I wrote a book Possible. called 2,000 yeah, right. Quotes to the Wise. So if you go online right now and go to 2,000 Quotes to the Wise Demartini, you'll see the actual book. It's still a book that I published. I sold about 75,000 copies of it hmm. back in 83. And then it published again a couple other times. Now, I, I put this book out. And I divided the 2,000 words into 365 days. So there were five to six quotes per day. I put four days per page. So that means that there were five to six times four, 20 to 24 affirmations per page. And it was a 93-page book starting from January 1st to December 31st. If you go online, you'll see it. And then what I did is I, I decided I wanted to know once and for all what impact this had if I was to affirm these. So what I did is I created a chart called the Day-by-Day -Day Cycle Forecasting Forum that had spiritual, mental, career, financial, family, social, and physical areas of life on the left column. And then across the, the page was 31 days. I divided each of the, the lines into days. I took each day and divided it into four sections, 7 o'clock, 11 o'clock, 3 o'clock, 7 o'clock. And I took each area and I put it as plus 3, plus 2, plus 1, 0, minus 1, minus 2, minus 3. And then what I did is I got a, a clock, a little beeper clock from Target in my pocket. And a, I took this beeper and it would go off every four hours at, a, at 7, 11, 3, and 7. And then I would chant these quotations 108 times a day minimum. And I used these beads in my pocket to make sure I did them a minimum of 108. But I really did 600 to 1,000 affirmations a day on average. Wow. And what I did is I did these affirmations, the most positive statements with the most positive words, uh, approximately 600 to 1,000 times a day. And every four hours, a beeper would go off, a clock would go off. And then I would ask myself, how am I performing in each of these areas right now at 7, 11, 3, and 7? And I did as honest an evaluation as I could. Where was I? Plus two, minus one, zero, plus three, whatever it is, each time on all seven areas every four hours. And then I kept records of that for two years, 24 pages, 24 months, I kept that record. I did the most diligent uh, attempt to try to find out what positive thinking can do on physiology, psychology, performance, et cetera, as I could. I believe that I probably did the most in-depth uh, effort at being a positive thinker of any human being on earth. In the pursuit of that, I then at the end of two years got a calculator out, a Texas instrument one, and I, uh, I ran all the numbers, the plus one, plus two, minus one, plus three, minus two, uh -huh. zero. And I monitored the entire thing. And I calculated and totaled them all out in all seven areas of life. And they came out zero, 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 0 0.1, 0 0.2, 0, 0, 0, 0.1. It zeroed out. In other words, all the effort I had just created nothing but volatilities, but the total number of volatilities balanced each other out. Wow. And I learned then, I started studying the brain about homeostatic mechanisms and thermostatic and psychostatic systems and governing systems in the brain, which is what our executive center is trying to do. It's trying to get us into an equanimity state. Mm. And that was the end of my positive thinking. I was 30 years old and I said, done. And I was a little bit depressed because I'd spent 12 years of my life believing in it. And That's then that nice. day, I a quote by Paul Dirac, the Nobel Prize winner, who's created particle nanoparticles. He said that it's not that we don't know so much, we know so much that isn't so. 
Mm. And we're taught so much that isn't so. And mostly in physiology, psychology, sociology, and theology is where the four opiums of the masses trying to teach you health without disease, happiness without sadness, harmony without disharmony, and heaven without hell. Mm. And those four opiums are sold to people designed to be ignorant as a controlling mechanism to set up hypocrisies and moralities that nobody can live by, so they self-depreciate and they're easier to control. Right. And I found that out studying this, the, the text and the council meetings in the early Catholic Church, why they did it. It's really quite interesting. And the political things by Rockefellers, and they talked about it. Hmm. So in the process of doing it, I realized that I'm no longer going to pursue those delusions. I'm going to make a hard science out of that. Hmm. And so I've made my effort to take physiology. I've t written textbooks on physiology, psychology, sociology, and theology to try to make a hard science out of it so people don't have to go off and live with anthropomorphic deities that are there to protect them from their fears and set up philias for phobias and set up fantasies for their nightmares and set up fantasies instead of true objectives and then end up wondering why they're beating themselves up and not living inspired lives and then wanting to be spectators instead of actually you know, contributors. Yeah. So I don't promote one-sided thinking because I've not found it to be accurate and it's misleading and it gives people a temporary high and it leaves them with a crash. Thank you so much for sharing that. It goes super deep. So, and I think it goes especially deep for those that, you know, I've on the personal development journey, many people are, you know, uh, having these conversations with me in terms of, oh, maybe I don't need to interface with challenges in order to grow and maybe that's a myth, you know, and I'm learning that. And I'm like, some of the biggest things that I've seen in life just through the journey of the inspired evolution, like, and to be honest, like case in point in this conversation, like um, John's story indicates, you know, like all the learning uh, challenges, overcoming those, then becoming such a, a profound teacher, you know, our biggest challenges form our biggest gift is this continuous thread that I see again and again. Um, but as you said, it's like an opiate to avoid, avoid that, um, avoid the challenges, avoid the, yeah, the phobias. So one of the, the uh, phobia for the, so one of the questions that I've got then um, is all the work that you're doing seems to be pointing to helping us create this balanced perspective on our, on our psychology, on our relationship with ourselves, our sociology. So from there, do you actually think there is an opportunity for us to rewrite the script of, you know, obviously the, the, the biases that we have from an evolutionary standpoint, we actually have the opportunity to rewrite them, um, to have a different relationship with the world and each other? Absolutely. Um, the instincts and impulses in our animal nature are epigenetic responses from subjectively stored data that we picked up from conception till today mm. and the ones that were epigenetically passed down generation after generation and we know it goes back at least five generations possibly eight or more so every time we perceive something and we are attracted to it and we are conscious of the upsides and unconscious of the downsides we um we polarize our perceptions with bias. We have a confirmation bias of the upside, a disconfirmation bias of the downside, a false positive on the upside, a false negative on the downside. And we have a, 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 what they call a false reality. We hallucinate. Mm -hmm. Scientific American has a beautiful article um, in September edition last year, 2019, on the hallucinations that most people live by and they don't even realize they're doing it. Biases. Uh, we have false attribution bias, confirmation bias, many different biases. There's over 700 different biases that people are subtly living with. Every day. And, and then we also have the resentments, things that would challenge our values, right, that predator-like, that uh, we are now conscious of the downsides, unconscious of the upsides. And again, having a subjective bias, confirmation bias on the negatives and a disconfirmation bias on the positives, and a false positives on the negatives and a false negative on the positives on this one. And this polarity of perception uh, skews our reality, and uh, we have uncertainty. If mm. I went to you and I said, uh, you're always up, you're never down, you're always positive, never negative, you're always kind, you're never cruel, you're always nice, never mean, you're always uh, peaceful, never wrathful, you're always generous, never stingy, you're always giving, never taking, you're always considerate, never inconsiderate. If I said that about you and I'm enamored with you, your own bullshit meter would go off and go, uh... <laughs> 
bullshit meter would go off intuitively and say, uh, not always. Yeah. You think the times you've been an asshole, if you know what I mean. Yeah, totally. I went to you and I said, you're always mean, you're never nice, you're always cruel, you're never kind, you're always wrathful, never peaceful, always negative, never positive, always inconsiderate, never considered, always stingy, never generous, always taking, never giving. You immediately would have your bullshit meter go off and think, no, I'm a, I have times when I'm a good guy, right? I'm a nice guy. Yeah. So you, you would have a, your intuition whispering to you on that's bullshit. That's not true. So if I have a perception about you that's polarized, you have a knowing that's bullshit. But if I said to you, sometimes you're nice, sometimes you're mean, sometimes you're kind, sometimes you're cruel, sometimes you're positive, sometimes you're negative, sometimes you're generous, sometimes you're stingy, sometimes you're giving, sometimes you're taking, sometimes you're considered, sometimes you're inconsiderate, sometimes you're peaceful, sometimes you're wrathful, you would immediately go, that's true. You would have certainty. A human being can never have certainty unless they have objectivity until they see both sides. They're designed to have uncertainty, to waver them, to wobble them, like a top precessing with black and white, if it's spinning, instead of one that's standing steady when it sees both sides synchronously. Hmm. And a person that doesn't have bias, but has true objectivity and sees both sides, they're steady, they're certain, they're clear, they know instead of unknown. And therefore, we have a yearning to want to know what we don't know. So we have a built-in mechanism inside our brain to try to get that objectivity, which is what occurs if we live by our highest value and only our highest value, where we're inspired. Inspiration is a confirmation we're living authentically. I love that. <laughs> now, the moment we do, we have a natural calling to pursue challenges that inspire us. Why? Because I, I used to do a presentation, teach a class called Awakening Your Genius. And I wanted to know, I, I studied every friggin' genius I was able to get my hands on that were polymaths that made major contributions on the planet. And I wanted to know what was common to them. And I found consistent reference to perseverance. They persisted. They never stopped. I saw them not worrying about what other people thought. They did it because they loved doing it. And they didn't want to get the opinions of others interfering with it. And I saw that it was a challenge that meant something deeply meaning in their own voids in their life. And I realized that if a person pursues challenges that inspire them, they wake up their greatest genius, innovation, creativity, and they make the greatest difference because of that originality. I've said since I was in my 20s that I create original work to serve humanity. That's been an affirmation since my 20s. Mm. Now, what's interesting is every time you are infatuated with somebody or resentful to somebody and have these biases and put them on pedestals or pits, Whenever you put somebody in a pedestal and infatuate, you minimize yourself in compensation. Mm -hmm. Whenever you put people in the pit, you exaggerate yourself. And when you minimize or exaggerate yourself in shame or pride, you're not being yourself. Mm -hmm. So the moment you judge, you're inauthentic, and you're creating polarization and uncertainties. And that's a symptom that creates epigenetic impact on your brain and your physiology to create symptoms and to awaken your intuition to try to let you know, hey, you're off balance mm -hmm. and you're eccentric, not eccentric. And then your people around you, if you get cocky, they, they humble you with criticism. If you get down, they lift you up. They're trying to get you in the center sociologically. Back to home really, You attract tragedies to humble you. If you get really humble, you get comedies to lift you. Nature is trying to get you there. It's almost like a panpsychic intelligence. The universe is trying to get people authentically empowered. Yeah. And the moment you get aware of that and see everything is on the way for that objective, you're graced, you're inspired, you're creative, you wake up your genius and you contribute the difference and you actually love solving problems because the greater the problems you solve, the greater the fulfillment you have. Why fulfillment? Because the more the polarizations and the more you're too proud or too humble to admit what you see in, in them inside you, the more voids you have that want fulfillment. So it, that's why your highest value where you're most objective neutralizes all the polarities and judgments and you're, when you're doing something you really love and inspired by in a day, you have the most resiliency and adaptability because you're more neutral and don't fear the loss or gain of things. You're just present. And in that powered state, that's where you actually make the greatest contribution and love solving problems to give you fulfillment. I love that. Thank you so much because that was going to be one of my questions today is the pursuit of happiness versus the pursuit of fulfillment. And you've just laid it out there in terms of this is why fulfillment is so much more intrinsically valuable um, and it is the pursuit of fulfillment. Freud, Freud said that we have the pleasure, hedonistic pleasure pursuit. Mm. We have the power pursuit and we have meaning. Mm. And the distinction between ourselves and the animals is the meaning. Mm. And guess what the mean is? The mean 
is the mean between the polarities of perception. <laughs> and that goes all the way back to Aristotle. Aristotle and the Stoics around that time understood this. And so it's, it's finding meaning is being able to intuitively extract the downsides to the upsides and the upsides to the downsides. When you are infatuated with somebody, your intuition is trying to point to downsides to give meaning to why this is happening. And if you're resentful to something, that's trying to give you the upsides to get you meaning and purpose too. Nature's attempting to give you meaning out of experience. Kama said there is no meaning in the universe other than what human beings give. Mm. That's true. But there's still the ability to extract meaning out of every event in your life and find the mean and keep in the Fibonacci progression towards the sun, as Pythagoras would say, the path of enlightenment. I love that. So one of the things that I have heard you say, and this has been true and truer for me, is oftentimes we have this conversation around confidence. And I've come in to believe that actually confidence is a complete bullshit facade. Um, and for me, it's been, it's really empowering when I tune into your work and then I find like something that I'm trying to distill and I find, oh, John's already made a mention to this somewhere along the way. And for me, it's a byproduct um, of clarity. And we're just talking about uncertainty here and you're talking about clarity. Does that kind of sound about right to you? When we're authentic, we have certainty. Mm. When we're inauthentic, we're designed to have uncertainty to get us back as a feedback loop to get us back into our authentic self. Mm. So the imposter syndrome is a normal byproduct of judgment. The moment you exaggerate yourself and look down on people and try to get them to live in your values and throw projections of imperatives on them, you should, you ought to, you're supposed to, you got to, you have to, you must live according to what I say or you minimize yourself and put people on pedestals and inject their values and try to live in their values, the shoulds and ought tos of theirs, um, those uncertainties of shame or pride are automatically designed not to be certain because they're not you. But the moment you're you and you're in a state of grace and you're present because a perfectly equilibrated mind of equanimity and objectivity opens the heart and you feel graced and you feel love for your life and for the universe around you, and you're inspired, and you're present, and there you for you're certain. And there is act, act, actually a state of certainty. I, in my Breakthrough Experience program where I teach some of these principles and help people master their lives and break through what these illusions that they're holding on to, the mythologies instead of and the, the things that create the pathologies in their life, the pathology is a byproduct of not knowing the path of your own logos, your own reason. And so when the person is able to break through that, and get a glimpse of that, uh, they can have certainty. And I show them how to have that state of certainty where there's an unwavering certainty moment. It's only in the moment of certainty that you have evolution. When you have uncertainty, you have revolution. Because anything you infatuate or resent keeps reverberating in your mind. The Buddhists call that samsara, samsara, the wheel of 84. But the Dharmic path was the path where you had objectivity and certainty, where you knew your path, you knew yourself. When it says know thyself, be thyself, love thyself, it's true. Your highest value is your identity revolves around. And if you live congruently by priority according to that, you actually get to know yourself. Because that's where you're most objective and equanimous. I love that. Thank you so much for, for clarifying that for us. So tuning back into um, your story, and um, one of the things that I wanted to, to dive into is intuition because you've mentioned it just then as well and also you know there was this this intuitive voice that you like when you tuned in you saw this vision of yourself um speaking to people you had this intuition that you know you wanted to to serve and to you know speak research and so from there how does like what is the in your humble opinion where does the intuition come from and how do we actually access that for for the average average listener okay impulse is a desire and yearning for the prey. Instinct is a desire to avoid the predator. Mm. And they are a positive feedback system which dramatizes and polarizes towards false positives to make sure you don't get eaten and that you eat. Mm. Intuition is a neutralizing negative feedback system trying to find the downsides in the prey to calm down your impulse and the upsides to the predator so you can in, calm down your instinct, so you can be present. Because if you're present and you're still, you actually draw the animal to you and you, the other one doesn't bite. Mm. So, a, a yogis or great mystics understood this. 
So the, the person who is able to be centered and present can interact with the animals and not fear the predator. There are people that can go out and be with tigers and lions and be friends with them, as you know. And they know how to be centered. The second they have an instinct from it, it has a tendency to go after it. Right. Same thing for an impulse. If you got an impulse and you're afraid of you're afraid you're going to starve or something like that, you don't have the ability to conquer that leptin and ghrelin impulse. Hmm. You you the, it, it, it runs. It can sense it. Otherwise, it just feels like a friend to you. You know, it's the old uh, story of Tarzan, if you will. <laughs> Tarzan can interact with the predators and the prey. And um, so, in the second you're centered, uh, you don't have this impulse and instinct. And intuition is the negative feedback system to try to homeostate you back into equilibrium. Mm. So imagine a thermostat or a governor of a motor. Um, if it gets hot, it cools it down. If it gets cold, it warms it up. That's a thermostat. That's a negative feedback loop bringing homeostasis. Stasis means the forces of nature are balanced. Mm. And homeostasis, or at least allostasis, which is a moving balance, is what most human beings live with. But the second we go into dramatization, where we polarize it and we get emotional and we get out of control. That's the positive feedback loop of impulse and instinct. And people that don't have governance over their impulse and instincts live with passion of an animal. And those that know how to govern themselves with their intuition live with a mission as an angelical human, an enlightened path of a human. Light doesn't have polarity. It's spaceless, timeless, massless, and chargeless. But particles and nanoparticles have polarity. And when they're separated in space and time by polarizations of the mind, they're entangled. So intuition is an entangling force inside the mind trying to show the realization that these are actually inseparable in the mind. There is no separation of positive and negatives. Those are the illusions of the conscious and unconscious splits because of judgment. And Pedicles said in the 5th century, very clearly, 6th century almost, about his world on, on the four elements that Aristotle referred to, he said that there was, there was a love and strife in the universe. Strife is when you dissemble and dis disassociate the polarities, and love is when you integrate the polarities. Mm -hmm. And so true love is the, the synthesis and synchronicity of all compromise opposites. And impulse and instinct is, occurs when we separate the inseparables, divide the indivisibles, label the unlabelables, name the inevitables, and polarize the unpolarizables. We magnetize into polarities instead of actually demagnetize into love. Thank you so much for sharing that. So in that same sort of neutralizing effect, is that kind of the space that um, gratitude also sits in then as well? And that's why it's so powerful. A perfectly equilibrated mind is grace. Hmm. See, there's two types of, of gratitude. There's a superficial gratitude that the mass consciousness lives in that. Thank you for giving me something. I think I've got something. It seems like a gift. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And when things go your way and support you, you go, thank you, thank you. When things go away, you go, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you, if you choose expression. Yeah. And future understanding of conscious knowledge, right? You, you, youthful or organized understanding. That's a sacred acronym I just used. But, but, but what happens is when, when all of a sudden you realize that those are, that form of thankfulness is superficial. There's a deep one. When you realize that there's a challenging going on in a support and you see the hidden order of both of them synchronously, mm -hmm. And when you see them synchronously, there's a poised grace. And you realize, by God, there's an intelligence in the universe, a panpsychic presence that's making sure that I'm getting both sides at once to maximize my growth. Because it's biologically been proven that maximum growth and development occurs at the border of support and challenge, mm -hmm. prey and predator, positive and negative. Erwin Schrodinger wrote a book in 1944 called What is Life? Mm -hmm. Fantastic book, Nobel Prize winning classic book. And he showed that life evolves by quantum leaps. Mm -hmm. and, and him and Dirac, who took particle and nanoparticles, which is partly what gave us rise to particle accelerators today that Brown put together. If you take positive and negatives and you integrate those two, uh, you make light. And so, too, if you take the positive negatives of human behavior, psychology, and put them together synchronously, you have enlightenment. Mm -hmm. And that is grace. And that is a, that's a state of gratitude that I... I, in the breakthrough experience that I do almost every weekend, I just finished last night, I make sure that everybody who attends there does not stop in their realization until they get that synthesis and synchronistic compromise opposite. They have equanimity and they have objectivity and they get to know what it's like to be in their telos, their highest value, their real present state, where they got their magnetism, their power. And all of a sudden, when they do that, they realize what grace really means. 
Because that grace occurs when you have no desire to change others relative to you with pride, and there's no desire to change you relative to others with shame. There's simply a, a love for somebody and realization that there is a reflective awareness. The seer, the seeing, and the seen are the same, and there's nothing to fix. There's a poised state where there's awe, where human will matches divine will, when predestination and free will are joined, when there's no paradox to ask a question, there's a state of knowing. And that state is grace. And that is what I'm talking about when I talk about real gratitude, deep gratitude. Just like the difference of infatuation and agape love, same kind of thing. Or the difference between excitement and enthusiasm. They're not the same. People confuse the two. Or passion and mission. Passion is, means to suffer. Mission is a grace state of, of a calling to a mission. Totally different babies. Hmm. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think a lot of what we've um, been talking about um, has been culminating to this question um, that has emerged for me in this episode, which is, so we talk a lot about how everything is kind of bringing us to this natural homeostasis, which seems to be this call to balance, which is consistently occurring. But then there's also this impetus to growth and just the mind uh, would uh, not intuitively, but the mind kind of sees these as perhaps two different um, pursuits. The pursuit for balance does not necessarily sound like the pursuit for growth, but it seems like uh, achieving balance is growth. Can you shed some light on what's, yes. what's going on? It's been a paradox many students have asked me. The moment you have a polarization and you have uncertainty, you have a quest inside you, an innate quest for homeostasis, electronically, molecularly, and in your own psychology. This perturbation that we feel when we're unstable and we have volatilities and we have an ungoverned state uh, makes us have an intuitive quest to find our to solve, solve these problems, these, these, this instability, this perturbation. And it's mainly because we're extrinsically driven. When we live by our highest values, we're intrinsically called. When we live by our lower values, we're extrinsically driven, motivated. Punishment, reward thinking. So the second we have this perturbation, we have this quest for knowing, when we actually equilibrate it, we get to know. If we're infatuated with something, we don't know it because we're unconscious of a downside. When we're resentful to something, we don't know it. We're unconscious of a upside. When we're in love with something, we know it. In that moment of love and equanimity, we know something. In that moment, we do what is called a quantum leap, a spaceless, timeless quantum leap. That's called evolution. The moment we do, we then start the next judgment, the next mystery, the next problem, mm. next no unknown. Mm -hmm. Now we, that, that evolutionary process is the next unknown. But the second we do that, we undergo a revolution because anything we infatuate with or resent in our minds occupies space and time in our minds and keeps us running around with all this noise in the brain. <laughs> and we have stagnation until we integrate. The second we integrate, we make another quantum leap. We make another evolutionary jump. That's why Schrodinger in his book showed that all, all evolvement occurs by quantum leaps. And quantum leaps are the synthesis, not the polarities. So the growth process, but once we do, we start our next illusion. Then the next illusion is the assumption that we're going to get an advantage over a disadvantage on this next pursuit. And there we set up a next fantasy. But as we go through the fantasy and pursue the fantasy, we discover, God almighty, if I had known all the crap I'm going to go through. <laughs> But the difference between a fantasy and an objective, mm. the gradations of goals in between, is an objective knows there's both sides and foresights them with its imagination, anticipates them, mitigates the risk, comes up with a solution in advance so they act, not react. Mm. They're preparing with foresight instead of living the lowest heuristically by hindsight, by telenomics and trial and error. Mm. So by going through and doing that, they are anticipating that, and the one who can do that most effectively and the most objectively makes the next quantum jump, and they evolve at a maximum efficiency. And the individual who can stay objective keeps evolving. The person who keeps getting caught in its next polarity can stagnate and get caught in revolutions, not evolutions. I love that. Thank you so much for sharing that. And uh, I think for me, the intention of uh, the conversation I wanted to have with you today was, was focused around... Um, around self-mastery and i think that's kind of the the trajectory of like the underlying thread of everything in terms of balance equanimity and growth um i think there's so much in there every time i have the honor like damn it it was too short <laughs> i wish i could have got more more time with you so i would love to love to jump on with you again but i think in the key thing for me and thank you so much for sharing your story and the insights that have woven out from there because i think 
the context is so so important for us when we're trying to learn and just to reflect back to you um just the context with which you provide the level of self-mastery the curiosity the, the the learnings that you've undertaken on yourself in order to then be able to teach and share that um and just the through lines that you find again and again and you share with such grace is such a blessing to to receive and behold so i just want to really thank you for your time and energy here today John. oh thank you thank you very much i uh i love doing what i do so um, thank you for the opportunity to give me the opportunity to share it. Hopefully, oh, will, when they listen to this, if they probably will have to review it a few times. That's not uncommon <laughs> and, uh, because I speak a bit fast sometimes. But I um, feel certain that the content that we got to share today will be of value to people if they, if they pursue it and take it in. Absolutely. It's changing my life. So thank you so much. I really appreciate that. For those that want to get in touch with John, the best place to find your work online, obviously, the website is filled with resources um best like one of the i direct a lot of uh my clients a lot of people just to go get the values exercise done it's an amazing free resource that john has provided on his website is that the best place for people to get in touch yeah if they go on to uh, drdmartini.com d-r-d-e-m-a-r-t-i-n-i.com they can get access to i mean there's hundreds and hundreds of interviews there's tons of youtubes i mean it's an educational resource you could probably spend the rest of your life on and not run out of time. You could, it's got that much material on it. And I can totally attest to that for me. Yeah. Like, you know, I spend a lot of downtime researching, learning myself and even just the amount of content that's available from John on YouTube. The, the I love the watchable experience. It's incredible. So really this, thank you so much for all the work that you put into that place. We'll put all the links to everything in uh, the show notes and uh, yeah, John, as always, Wishing you all the best on the journey ahead. Thank you so much again. Thank you, and, and vice versa. And thank you for all the things you're doing and great questions. I appreciate them. Hey, Tribe. Thanks for tuning in to another fun, enlightening episode of the Inspired Evolution. I've been loving all the feedback and personal stories of love, uh, health, and growth. Your feedback and stories are incredibly welcome. The easiest way to connect with me is via my website, which is www.amrit-sandu.com. You can leave me a message or a comment. It's one of my highest values to connect. So I love to connect and love to hear from you. You can also find me on Facebook, Amrit Sandu. And if the content has been resonating with you, you can help the Inspired Evolution out in a big way by liking the YouTube channel, subscribing to the Inspired Evolution, or the Facebook page, like that please, at the Inspired Evolution, or by leaving a review on iTunes if you you're on an Apple device. And also, if the Inspired Evolution episodes are inspiring an evolution within you, or you can feel the inspiration is valuable for your team to evolve to the next level, you can head on over to www.amrit-sandu.com to see how the Inspired Evolution can help you and your team thrive. Much love, tribe. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.